Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And this week on the show, grab your wide lapel shirts and ridiculous chain wallets for a trip to mid-90s Hollywood and our 20th anniversary review of Swingers. Inspired by Swingers, we thought, let's take a break from our usual format and just do an hour-long consideration of the late 90s swing music revival. Allison, I love your Cherry Poppin' Daddy shirt. Oh, thank you, Matt. I'm impressed your Royal Crown Review hoodie still fits after all these years. Yeah, thanks. Um, I don't I don't remember any other swing bands. Not Big Bad Voodoo Daddy? Oh, yeah. They're, I mean, they're in the movie. Brian yeah. Setzer Orchestra? I mean, that sounds familiar. Squirrel Nut Zippers? Wow. You actually know a lot of swing. Big Rude Jake? Okay, you can stop now. Johnny Favorite Swing Orchestra? Are you making these up? James B. and the Royal Jelly Orchestra? Please stop. Not until you tell people what we're really talking about this week. Okay, all right, fine. We're going to do an episode centered around the films of the halcyon days of 1996. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with Movies on Demand on Cable in which we spotlight three titles that are new on demand. Allison, what have you got for us this time? Well, first up, we have a movie that I have been looking forward to for a while. I missed when it was in theaters, and I am glad that it's now on demand. It is The Clan. This is an Argentine film from Pablo Trapero, not to be confused with The Club, the Chilean film from Pablo Lorraine that also came out last year. I'm glad you clarified, because I, I thought you were talking about that movie. So yes. go ahead. So they came out like around the same time. They're on the f- same festival circuit, even. I saw The Club. I did not see The Clan, right. so well, I want to hear what This it's is about. the one that is based on the Puccio family, uh, or family from Buenos Aires, that actually did kidnap four people, hold them for ransom, and kill three of them uh, in the 80s. And it was a big hit in, you know, Argentina. It was, I think, a fairly successful export. And it also kind of famously juxtaposed very dark subject matter with bright pop songs from the 80s. Okay. Um, so it's, I, I do love a good dark movie set to bright music. And it's, you know, gotten very well reviewed. So that's The Clan. It is available now on demand, as are these next two films. First up, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, uh, written and directed by Chloe Zhao. It is her directorial debut and takes place on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, which is where the Lakota Indian, there's a Lakota tribe there. And it's about two uh, siblings who are 
living fairly difficult lives on this on this reservation that has been ravaged by alcoholism and poverty. In particular, there is the older brother who is one of 25 children who have been uh, fathered by a bull rider uh, with nine different mothers and has all of these kind of half-siblings around who has maybe not that much in common with them the, until their father dies, and he kind of has to reckon with that. Uh, and then his sister has her own journey. It's a really beautifully made film, and I think kind of offers a peek into an area that doesn't get put on screen very often. So that's Songs My Brothers Taught Me. And also new on demand is the boy, it's the, the, this year's version of The Boy Next Door, the J-Lo instant classic in which she has a affair with a, a younger man. In this case, it is about the younger man, played by Nick Jonas in his film debut. What? It is Careful What You Wish For, uh, an erotic thriller that has basically <laughs> dumped into theaters. Uh, you, you had me at erotic thriller and Nick Jonas. Right. Uh, Nick Jonas actually has a, a, a more promising dramatic role in the movie Goat, uh, which is like about hazing in a frat and which played at Sundance and is coming out later this year. It's funny that that movie kind of premiered first and then this movie, his film feature film debut came out afterwards um, and is being touted uh, as his first movie. But he plays a high school student who has an affair with the older housewife next door, played by Isabel Lucas, a ripe 31 years old. Oh, no. Um, she, has, <laughs> she has an abusive husband, played by Dermot Mulroney. He dies. There is intrigue, etc., etc. I'll be honest, I will totally watch this movie because... <laughs> It sounds ridiculous, but there you go. Also, and do look for Goat. It's a movie that I didn't love, but does feature some very strong performances from from Jonas and from the actor who plays his brother. Um, So that is Careful What You Wish For, and it is also now available on demand. Listen to me, Mike. Your self-esteem is low right now because she's with somebody else. But talking about it and thinking about it all the time, it's depressing. It's no good, man. You just need one more time. Why, so you can sit around your stuffy apartment beating yourself up over it? Remember the first week after she told you? Don't remind me. Huh? You couldn't even leave your place. You know, you just sat around your stuffy apartment, sitting there drinking orange juice, feeling sorry for yourself. Hell, look at you, man, right? I mean, you got a part in the movie. Day. Whatever, Mike, it's work. You understand? You're doing what you love to do. What the hell is she doing now? Selling scrap metal. Okay. And this guy she's seeing, what the hell does he do? What? I heard he drives a carriage around Central Park. Oh, Mike, please. You're the fun loving, outgoing party guy, and you're sweating some lawn jockey. All right, it's time for this week's Listener's Choice Review. On our last show, we gave you three options from 1996, which. To my great astonishment and complete disgust, is now 20 years ago. Allison, 1996 feels like it happened to me, I don't know, 18 months ago? Yes, and yeah, I think when you watch some of these movies, you're like, oh yes, yes that was a, a while ago. Yes. <laughs> Behold the ravages of age. Uh, this is a very poor way of saying that Doug Lyman's Swingers was your listener's choice winner. It beat out Cameron Crowe's Jerry Maguire. And that year's Best Picture winner, The English Patient, which did put on a strong showing and kind of came back at the last minute, but couldn't quite catch 
swingers. Our hero in the film is Michael, played by the film's writer, John Favreau, who is a struggling stand-up comic who still hasn't gotten over his breakup to his longtime girlfriend six months earlier. His best friend Trent, played by Vince Vaughn, tries to lift his spirits by dragging him to Las Vegas and an endless string of Hollywood parties and hookup spots, but Mopey Mikey just can't get out of his own head. Swingers was one of the iconic indie movies of its era. It made stars of John Favreau and Vince Vaughn, and it launched Doug Liman's directorial career as well. It's well-remembered for its dialogue, a lot of which has gone on to become part of the vernacular. And may I say, Allison, you are so legal tender, you aren't even aware of it. I'm pretty sure that how that went, right? That's definitely how, that's the thing that people say all the time. Wonderful, wonderful. The opening credits of Swingers play to the sounds of Dean Martin's You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You, which is an appropriate sentiment for the film. And it's an appropriate sentiment for our discussion, particularly the line, the world still is the same, you'll never change it. Allison. Yes. 20 years later. Yeah. Is Swingers still the same? You can't change the movie, but has your view of it changed? And after 20 years, how does it hold up? Yeah, I didn't like it as much. Ah. I, I feel I've seen this movie many times, but I think not for at least a decade. Mm-hmm. And I it's funny that you have that feeling. You both remember it very well. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, there are things you don't remember. Well, you, yeah. The content, I think just like putting it back into another context. And I feel like the things that I still like a lot are, I like the friendship uh, between Mike and Trent. You know, I, I think that it's, there's something very sweet about it g- given all that, like it, it is essentially about someone constantly goading their friend into trying to pick up women right uh, there, there's a real sweetness to it that i really like and i like i love the scenes in which they go to the parties i mean i feel like this movie is strongest when it's it's self-deprecating you know when it is based on being a loser when it is about being a loser yeah. in hollywood yeah i think that but uh, you know i i think that in uh, 2016 terms trent comes across much more as like a pickup artist who mm. negs women. Mm. And I think that uh, he's still very funny. It's, you know, the iconic uh, Vince Vaughn role. For it's sure. Not just his breakout, but I think it's the one that basically set the tone for his career to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's just it's a little less charming to see him, uh, I think, in 2016. And uh, I just... I just just never liked Mike. I never no. did. No, I never liked him that much when he, uh, just like as a hero, mm-hmm. I think he, there was like a little too much self pity to him, uh, that I, I didn't mind as much when watching this, you know, when I was a teenager or in college, but I think now I get a little exasperated by, so still a lot of scenes that I think in this largely episodic movie work really well, mm-hmm. but yeah, as a whole, it just didn't hold up as well for me. But yeah. how about you, Matt? I mean, I think I probably enjoyed it a little more than you did. I agree that there's some things that, looking back at it, you're sort of, frankly, mortified by. I mean, actually, you mentioned Trent, the the pickup artist thing. I didn't quite get that, but I see it now that you say it. To me, though, I was kind of uh, mortified by, like, how often uh, Mikey is calling women skanks Skanks, at the beginning of the movie. It's like, it's not just one time. It's, like, over and over and over in the first, like, 15 minutes. And then they don't say it again, but, like, those first, like, 15, 20 minutes, he's just saying it all the time. And obviously in 1996, uh, you know, to my great shame, that didn't really make me bat an eye. But now I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's a lot of skank language. Well, it's it's a weird thing to also call 
all of these women because you're right. like they're not talking to you they're not sleeping they with do, you right they didn't they're do not, anything yeah. to him like like what evidence do you have that they are skanks right other than that they are not the woman that you're still hung up on right who was a real woman right yeah so that i thought was pretty mortifying for sure but um i generally i did enjoy it i i think that it is a time capsule it is of its era you know i mean i'm not trying to say because of that stuff i you know you shouldn't watch this movie or we should you know destroy it it's i think that it is that's almost now kind of what makes it i think the most interesting thing is that it feels very much like of its time it feels uh like a snapshot of this time at this place which i think in some ways is valuable even though i kind of horrified by some of that language there's a little homophobia in the movie too which i didn't remember but there's a lot of that in a lot of movies from that period and there still is today and there still is today so yeah i I don't know. I, I can't say that I loved it as much as I did when I was 18, but I still kind of liked it. I think it it has something. I think if nothing else, you see why Favreau became a, a star and even more why Vince Vaughn became a star. And I think it's a very well-directed movie for a little movie, which was clearly made on, on no budget. And I also thought the thing that I never noticed um, as, as an 18-year-old that I really appreciate now is the editing in this movie is really wonderful for the sort of comic timing. The transitions between scenes. Stephen uh, Murion is the editor. He went on to edit a lot of Soderbergh movies. He did the Oceans trilogy. He did Traffic. He then did a lot of uh, in your read movies like Babel. We don't have to talk about that. But they, just like, you know, they're in the car going to Vegas, which has now, you know, Vegas, baby, Vegas has be you know, it's like. Yeah, like so many things in this movie really did become kind of a, a part of the language. And then they're so excited. And then there's an instant cut to they're still in the car. Potentially yeah, hours drive. later. Yeah. And they're like, Vegas, baby, we're going to make like those kind of moments. And there's a bunch of them, including some that are very self-deprecating, as you said, I thought were really, really great. Yeah, it's funny that the aspect of this movie that would seem to make it the most dated, which is the swing scene, the whole, yeah. the aspirations these characters have towards being the Rat Pack when they are in fact like broke, aspiring actors They're and comedians. They're losers. Yes. Uh, I mean, that is the part that I don't think feels like it's aged too much, whereas you think it might because that, that the language, was so, the it was swing so also, music, yeah. Right, confined to this particular moment. But yep. I think that it still works well because that contrast between this glamour to which they aspire and the reality of their lives and like their terrible apartments, which is something that I hadn't remembered and really appreciated. Yes, the apartments the I noticed as well. accuracy of like their terrible apartments. John Favreau's apartment is, it might be like a record for awful apartments in movies yes. at this period when we're right. still like, you think of like the Woody Allen New York apartments where they're like, who lives in an apartment like this when they're like a struggling writer? Here you have Favreau the struggling comic and his apartment is so pathetic and sad. It's great. It is great, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that the thing about this movie that did feel more aged to me is its kind of place on a spectrum of, and maybe as a kind of precursor to these, like, bro comedies that mm. happened, you know, a decade or so later. Some the more which, mainstream ones, yeah, you mean, some like, the of Hollywood comedies? Yeah, some Vince Vaughn. True. You know? Oh, like Wedding Crashers right. and that kind of thing. And I think that, uh, you know, it's funny to see this movie, which is so much about, like, men hanging out right and like met male friendships uh and and men trying to teach each other how to talk to women yeah i think that i mean that's the part of this that actually feels a bit more dated to me not that it's about men but just something about its bro comedy-ness hmm. that feels i don't know like uh 
it, it felt like it held together a little less well to me. That's interesting. I didn't really think of it on that continuum, but I can again, I can see it now that you say it. I mean, Vince Vaughn did make a lot of movies like like this in Hollywood, and maybe um, this is like the less kind of mainstream version or just less broad comedy. Like you think of those movies he made, like with Will Ferrell, like an old school, where you sort of take this kind of the milieu and you really make it a big broad comedy where this is a little bit more of a drama or a dramedy a little more observational a little more sociological yeah i can see i can see that the other thing i wanted to mention i don't know if you felt this way that kind of shocked me was i i'm not blaming this on netflix necessarily but this movie looked really bad to me in terms of the print like i don't know if this is just an, like they have to they need to make a restoration of it or something but talking about how 1996 doesn't feel that long ago to me the movie i just thought looked very grainy and 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 low res it didn't look very good and i was kind of surprised you know i expected for a movie that's not that old to look to look better because i've seen movies on netflix online on streaming that are much older, that look crisper and cleaner. Maybe this movie needs a little uh, little cleanup. I don't know. But the print that Netflix had, I thought, was... I mean, it barely... It looked. It reminded me of watching it on VHS at that period. It just doesn't look that great. Yeah, I didn't notice, but maybe it's because I my associations with this movie are VHS, mm. and that, that's how it looks in my mind, mm-hmm. in my mind's eye, in my memory. But I will say, since we're talking about how it looks, there's something about... Like, this movie came... Uh, in an era of indie movies that were often dialogue driven and didn't necessarily look that great, you know? True. And I, there is like this movie's like cinematic qualities really deserve a shout out. Mm -hmm. I I think Doug Lyman is a, is a good director, if not always a consistent one. And I, I, you know, beyond just like the moments in which it quotes, they quote Tarantino and quote, uh, Goodfellas. Yeah. Yeah. Scorsese multiple times. Uh, I, I think that it doesn't look like the camera has just been plopped somewhere to capture these like witty exchanges, right? You know, there's no clerksiness to it, and uh, I appreciate that because it's not necessarily. I mean, oftentimes we're working in places that there these characters are in places that are supposed to be dingy. You know, they're yeah. terrible apartments. Uh, the the bar that they go to with Marty and Elaine playing. You know, they are right. uh, so trying so hard to be cool. And yet are so often in places that are not that cool or in which they are the least cool part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like the scene where they walk into the Hollywood Hills party and everyone looks for a second as and they pose back to their... and then goes back. Yeah. Yeah. You're nobody. Yes. Who are you? <laughs> no, you're not important. Yeah. That's a nice moment. The other thing, you know, you talked about like sort of the bro comedies that followed the, I, and the, the, the sort of maybe influence that I wondered about was kind of on more awkward comedy, things like The Office or Curb Your Enthusiasm. Not that obviously, you know, Larry David was making Seinfeld at at this time, but just scenes like the one where Favreau leaves those series of messages, which is so wonderfully uncomfortable, is a really great scene. And that sort of comedy was definitely not quite as in vogue as it would become later. Like, it, that really feels like something from The Office to me. Yeah, and I love that scene. And I think the movie is better when it is doing that. Yes. You know, and I, I, I suppose that's why I feel like the ending of this movie, mm-hmm. I've never loved. And mm-hmm. it's always soured me a bit. And the part where his girlfriend finally calls. Okay, I was going to say which ending, because there's yes. sort of two it, endings. There's multiple endings. I mean, like, the kind of triumph on the dance floor is a really good moment that's a great scene yes i love I think that it's just the closing where his girlfriend finally calls and he's uh heather graham is and calling out the other line the girlfriend yes and so he as she's saying up. as she's so she's perfectly saying, saying like i, I love, love you yes yeah and i feel like 
there's a, a bit of like take that for sure uh, to that that I I find like that there's like this occasional sour note to that that I don't like yeah especially when the whole point of this movie is that he moved out to LA and his relationship right. ended because he, he left, left her yes and that like uh, you know then I don't think like being like oh finally you know you let that terrible girl behind after she tried to move right. on from you right yeah um I. I, I How dare that, she dump him for leaving her? Yeah. I think that, as I said, I think this movie is best when it is kind of letting its characters mock themselves. I completely and agree. it's funny that after allowing, I think, a very earned moment of triumph, it then goes a little too far. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. That, that, mo- that moment does feel forced. And it doesn't, you know, I, I agree that the best stuff is is when we're sort of taking the piss out of these characters right. and showing the difference between their aspirations for coolness, as you said, and their, their really pathetic lives. And there is this sort of tendency to sort of want to get revenge in a way, which well, seems, I don't know, it just seems cheap. This movie is, is, is in part a movie about a guy getting his groove back, right? Correct. About like him understanding his money if he doesn't even know it yes but the other part of this and i think it's funny that the movie closes that way is that is it's kind of a movie about like when we're powerful finally we can treat people like dirt (laughs) like you know i feel like this part of like in terms it's not like oh i want to make it in hollywood in a way it's like i will be on top someday like that's what i want i want to be powerful enough yeah and yeah that's that said the final final scene Oh, I mean, yes. is a, in a way, it's almost a reversal of that. I mean, I mean, Favreau's character, Mikey, is happy, but it's also like the ultimate embarrassment of Trent, yes. which is sort of nice. I, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I like the fact that literally the very last thing is him getting kind getting of schooled and embarrassed. Yes. yes. And also, you know, the kind of, again, like undercutting of, you know, Favreau knows the secret now to, you know, to, to life, essentially, and he's about to explain it and... And that's when Vince Vaughn's character is like distracted by this woman and we never hear his the ultimate message. You know, right. I, I think that's a nice yeah. moment as yeah, well. Agreed. And I like I said, I think that their friendship is I mean, it's certainly the key to this movie, but it's also there is something really nice to its heart in that way also of like that friendship those friendships that you have that can be very intense and then like maybe burn out. You yeah. know, you don't feel like Mike and Trent are you don't know how Mike and Trent met no you don't they're not they didn't know each other like from New York right they don't like, doesn't like seem like Roy they Liv- knew each other in the yeah, past that like, they're uh, recent Ron friends Livingston's but they're character. so close right I was and, wondering about that too this yeah, time and that you have that feeling that maybe they're never they're not going to be friends forever but yeah. it's that moment where you're both in the same place in life right that like you can have a really intense friendship with someone I, I agree with everything you've said especially about that scene you know with the with the phone calls the the two calls at the same time with the old girlfriend that said in a, in a way I almost want to argue that there's something as much as it's kind of gross there's something kind of honest about it in a way sure. because this is a movie that you know for them from the mid 90s that a struggling you know filmmaker wrote in his mid-twenties, I mean, there's probably something truthful about that. I don't that. doubt it. I yeah. just think it's presented as a triumphant bit. Being, I, no, you know? completely. And I feel like I wish this movie had the self-awareness to suggest that, like, that that, that wasn't, there is a sourness to that, to yeah. know that. And I don't think it does. Totally, totally fair. All right. Before we close this out, what is your favorite line from this movie? Well, I'm going to go with a, 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 a random one just because... Besides all the famous lines, there's a line that I say in my life, which I did not remember, uh-huh. was from this movie. And wow. it is the, yes. And it is the line that uh, they say, 
Trent, Vince Vaughn has that monologue about this horrible audition he went on, which I think is actually based on something that it's, from it Vaughn's feels life. like it is, yeah. And there's this awkward pause afterwards, and Favreau says, well, we all have stories. And I say that all the time. When someone <laughs> tells a, a story and then no one knows what to say next, I always say, well, we all have stories. And that is from this movie. So I was like, so I chuckled because I had no memory of it being from this. You internalized it. I had internalized know. it, yeah. yeah. I have a fondness for uh, Alex Desaris. Uh, repeated line this place is dead anyway this place is dead anyway oh, it's pretty inevitably great inevitably when they're leaving a party that looks amazing yes. or a bar that is like <laughs> packed with people yeah always like on the move to whatever the new the next scene is yeah, yeah. can i ask one other question Please. before we wrap it up did you think at all m- ponder uh, the hair of john favreau and vince vaughn and how little of it they have i think that they are two people it's hard to look at without being like oh Time. Yeah. <laughs> time Nuff has said. its way, its way with us all. Okay. Yeah, that works. No, we can leave it right there. Swingers is available right now on Netflix. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. You may be king, you may possess the world and its gold, but gold won't bring you happiness when you're growing old. The world still is the same, you never change it. As sure as the stars shine above, Nobody till somebody loves you. So find yourself somebody to love. All right. Let's let's move on to Q Shots. We're talking about 1996, the year that was. I was I was 15 for most of the year. My my birthday's in December, so I was mostly 15 that year. Guess that would be I'm trying to think of which years. It was high school. I don't know which years off sophomore the top of my year? head. Sophomore into sophomore junior. Year. Yeah. Something like that. Um, I have open uh, here um, the Wikipedia page for 1996 in film. And I thought very quickly before we start, I might ask Allison a few questions here. All right. I'm ready. You Bring know it. the best film uh, for the Oscars because we already we already talked English about that. Patient. Yes. Do you know the best actor from that year? Mm, Ray Fiennes? A good guess. I'm sure he was nominated, but no, it was Jeffrey Rush from Shine. Shine, yes. yeah. And how about Best Actress? God, I have no idea. The Coen Brothers? Oh, um, Francis McDormand, McDormand from, from Fargo. Marge yes, from Anderson. Fargo. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. How about the number one box office hit, at least in the, uh, oh, I guess this is worldwide. So worldwide number one box office hit. Independence Day? That is correct. How about the number two movie? I, I'm at a loss. Twister. Oh, Twister, Twister. Was Yeah, yeah. I remember it well. Do you? I, I do not. When I, I was you. 17, it was a very good year. Anyway. Please don't get nostalgic over I'm Twister. Sorry. I'm sorry. Cow! Let's move on. All right. All right. Well, do you want to go first? Do you want to, you have a 1996 movie you want to talk about? Sure. Well, I, you know, I, 
looking over this year, mm-hmm. I feel like we have some movies that are very much still in the consciousness. Oh, like absolutely. Fargo especially, I think, has, especially with a TV show being mm-hmm. made. Uh, it's always interesting to me which movies also get acclaimed and talked about and then no, don't stick you know, um, so kind I want the English patient, like right? the English patient, yeah. certainly. But as I wanted to look at a movie that I got a lot of acclaim, but I think has like fair been neglected me unfairly really, mm-hmm. uh, ever since. And Roger Ebert was a big fan of it and championed it. And despite that, I think it's, it's gone neglected. It is Eve's Bayou, which oh, is yes. available for rent right now. Uh, this was a directorial debut of Casey Lemons, um, who went on to make a few movies like, uh, talk to me, Don Cheadle in 2007. She made, uh, the the musical the nativity musical um last year that, or the year before that was not well received mm-hmm. but uh this movie was certainly acclaimed uh and and has a, an amazing cast it's set in 1962 louisiana and the protagonist is a 10 year old named eve played by journey smollett who is the middle child of this well-off family um, and kind of in this awkward place where she's neither the favorite of her mother, Roz, played by Lynn Whitfield, who kind of prefers her younger brother and dotes on him, or her father, Louis, played by Samuel L. Jackson, uh, who is closest to Cicely, the oldest daughter, played by a young Megan Good. And over the course of a summer, uh, Eve starts to see her father differently, especially after the party uh, with which the movie starts ends with her seeing him uh, cheating on her mother with another woman. But it is really about how all the various women in this family deal with adore and hate, uh, I hate this man at the same time. He's the town doctor and is also kind of the town star. He's beloved by everyone seemingly uh, he mentions multiple times that he needs to and likes to be seen as a hero. And he is not. He's a womanizer. He is highly imperfect. He likes to drink. He likes to stay out. But he is charismatic and bright. And you understand why everyone is uh, almost kind of resentful of how much they want his attention. Uh, so that's true for Roz. It's true for Sisley, with whom... Uh, he has an increasingly complicated relationship that becomes the crux of the movie. Um, and it's true for Eve, who constantly wants his attention, but is also is also angry at him for both being denied it and for what she sees as these betrayals of her various uh, family members. I, I mean, this is, a, is kind of a noir. It unfolds over this kind of really interesting, uh, like Creole-inflected part of Louisiana. And it's... It's always filmed in this like beautifully like dark shady like uh, like the whole town is shaded over by these trees with hanging moss, uh, like like it's filled with secrets that you can almost see, uh, that are almost visible built into the landscape, and uh, it sets up this great divide between uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character being this man who represents science. Uh, but also, but there's just as equal uh, undercurrent of power that's attached to voodoo and to second sight with Debbie Morgan playing his sister, Moselle, who's had these terrible run with husbands who've all died tragically and who caters to this upscale clientele with his second sight. While meanwhile, uh, this woman named Elzora, played by Diane Carroll, is the town witch and offers a more... Uh, kind of immediate form of voodoo but it's just this kind of 
roiling uh, set of elements that all come together really nicely in the story towards the end and that uh, that become about uh, about a child's point of view and about it changing uh, in a way that I think it, it kind of beats atonement at that it is about understanding that you're not seeing that you don't understand things uh, and that the world as you see it and the things you think you you know uh, you can never have certainty with and it's got some really nice performances especially Journey Smollett who's uh, you know gone on to be have like a grown up career but is a really good child uh, actor here and who doesn't play into the cuteness of her character too much but is also adorable it's a great movie you know and it it, I think, got a lot of good attention. Yeah, it didn't really lead to Casey Lemons having a career that uh, and a lot of other people who had strong debuts in 1996, including the people behind you know, Swingers, went on to have. But it is definitely worth excavating. I think that it holds up very well and seems like a movie from the era that we should talk about more. That is Eve's Bayou. It is available for rent. All right. That's a great uh, pick. One reason... This week is a great week to talk about the films of 1996 is because the biggest movie of 1996, which Allison correctly identified, is getting its first ever sequel next weekend, at least as we're recording this. That movie is, again, Independence Day, directed by Roland Emmerich, and you can currently rent it or it's also available on HBO Go and HBO Now. And this is the wildly successful blockbuster about an... Alien Invasion of Earth, which is repelled by the combined efforts of the President of the United States, played by Bill Pullman, a dweeby computer wizard, played by Jeff Goldblum, and a cocky and brash Marine Corps pilot, played by Will Smith, in the movie that transformed the Fresh Prince into one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And despite the movie's enormous popularity and enduring popularity, I don't think I had seen... Independence Day since maybe 1997. Maybe I saw it more than once. But since that period, I was never a big fan of this movie when it came out. And as it slowly kind of accrued this reputation among people a little younger than us as this kind of 90s classic, I've mostly been very skeptical of that. But because Independence Day Resurgence is about to come out, I wanted to revisit it. This seemed like a good excuse to see... Like, how is it as a movie beyond the whole kind of reputation? Is it a classic or is it a disaster of a disaster movie? And, I, you know, I, I, I have to say I kind of liked it. I don't think – it's sort of in the middle is, my, is the short answer. The long answer is that on this viewing, I did really enjoy Jeff Goldblum's very quirky performance – uh, you know, there's not I – mean, obviously, he's in the new movie, but there's just not enough characters in these kinds of movies these days that are just sort of, like, genuinely kind of nebbishy and weird and not, like, physically heroic at all. There's too many, like, nerds that are also, like, actual, like, physical superheroes, whereas his character is, like he's – a, he's a legitimate nerd. He's an actual nerd, which I, I appreciated. And Bill Pullman is very good as the president. He gives that great – speech which has you know sort of become rightfully famous i think and you know the effects which were so groundbreaking at the time literally metaphorically they really hold up very well i think when the aliens attack you know the white house the empire state building the capitol building in la because apparently aliens hate the music industry allison 
there are some very, I would say, genuinely terrifying, genuinely nightmarish images in that sequence. It was a very, that's a very powerful sequence. On the flip side, I did not remember how much horrible comic relief there is in this movie. Harvey Firestein and Judd Hirsch and Harry Connick Jr., on top of Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum, who are also constantly making terrible jokes. And I don't know when the last time you saw this movie was, Allison, but you know, while the sort of the big effects and the ships and the explosions are all great, the aliens themselves might be some of the worst aliens <laughs> who have ever been in like a movie this big. They they don't look real at all. They look like puppets that aren't even being puppeted. They just they look like inanimate objects, which is it really whenever we see the actual aliens, I think it really brings the whole movie down. And the uh, the whole plot about they give the aliens a computer virus. I mean, given the fact that I can't make my Kindle and my iPhone talk to one another, the fact that Jeff Goldblum can give the aliens a computer virus is is pretty silly. But it was I, I actually found it pretty fascinating to look back at this at this movie because I think in the wake of it a lot of things you know it was a very influential movie, but like in so as in so many cases, Hollywood looks at something successful and they they take the wrong thing from it. Like which in this case was well, okay, well we need bigger explosions, we need the whole world to be at stake, we need incredible special effects, and the effects in, in Independence Day are are very impressive and they do hold up well. But there is some nice character stuff here, and you do like care about the people. Which is something that I, I feel like is the lesson that not enough movies took. Like, we actually, as goofy as Jeff Goldblum is, we actually care about him and his dad. They have some sweet scenes together. And and Will Smith and Vivica Fox have a very nice relationship. And and the president and his daughter and, his, and the first lady. There's, like, there's actual characters here. It's not just about the, you know, the action. And you feel things, and it's like I feel like the the movies that came out of this, too many of them are the spe- they nail the spectacle, but they don't capture the emotions, which is the reason that this movie, I think, even more than the the effects, is what why it it became so famous. Now for the sequel, I don't know; they haven't shown it to any critics. It's about to open, which is not a good sign. But I think the original movie it held up better than I expected to. I will give it that, and it's it's worth a, it's worth a watch at least once. And that is Independence Day, and you can rent it, and it is also available on HBO Go and HBO Now. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie since it was in theaters. Yeah. I, I think I ended up seeing it twice when it was in theaters. I enjoyed it thoroughly, but I don't understand the nostalgia for it. I, I think right. that it, it has never seemed like a movie that has been screaming for a sequel. No, certainly not. I think I think if there's a reason to be nostalgic for it, it is the effects because the, you know there's obviously some digital stuff going on there, but there is a like when those buildings are being destroyed by the aliens, there it feel there's something visceral and tangible about that, and even some of the you know like people running through cities for their lives. Sure, it was probably shot on a back lot. But it wasn't like a green screen. I think I've seen so many movies lately where I feel like I'm watching a cartoon that a real person is standing in front of. Yeah, well, beyond that, I feel like so many of these, so many movies I see these days, when there are people like running through the streets, it's just obviously like a digital crowd. You right. know, it doesn't look like a group of people. It looks like 
like one of the box of effects that's right. been clicked on. I think it was very easy to buy into the the this movie to believe that what you were seeing was real. I do enjoy the thought of aliens debating over which what's the major landmark of L.A. though. Right to be like where it's so like ah oh, it's such a sprawl. Look like, how much money the music industry makes. We must destroy it. This this now there would be a little yeah, they little didn't different aim for like uh, the Walk of Stars or anything like that. No, no they're like Capitol buildings where it's at. Yeah. All right. Well, for my next movie. Uh, I picked a movie that has that, that Hollywood has been trying to remake for a while now, and actually one that I think could could potentially do well with a remake. It is The Craft, which is available for our, for streaming on Amazon Prime, directed by Andrew Fleming and starring Robin Tunney, Feruza Balk, Nev Campbell, and Rachel True as a set of four young women in high school who become a coven and discover that with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, this movie is, I think like very much of its era in some ways. And there, it, it is un, it's undeniably hokey at times it, from the opening credits, which are just extremely nineties in some terrible ways. Uh, that said, there is a, a kind of weight to the fundamental idea of it that, that the movie I think like manages to find uh, and to, to make use of even despite the cheesiness of of the way it's done, which is that it's a group of outcasts, like school outcasts, who basically uh, are given this way to to take back their own power. You know, uh, when you have uh, Rochelle, Rachel True's character, who's being bullied uh, and called like racist slurs by this the pretty girl, pretty blonde girl in school, and then gets to have her revenge by basically making the girl's hair fall out, and she's played. Uh, Played by Christine Taylor, by the way, uh, you know, or you have Bonnie Nev Campbell's character, who's been like scarred since childhood and has been just like withdrawn and always covers herself up uh, and gets mocked a lot because of that, and then with their power is able to uh, kind of like wish herself into being healed. Uh, or for Zabok's character Nancy, who was the villain of the story, is uh, you know comes from the worst background, has like the terrible home life, and basically uses like if power is like the secret she like wills her stepfather to die and leave them money and she and her mother uh, are able to like move on to this better life i think there is there is something to this like wish fulfillment you know given to these outcast girls that despite the movie's uh gothiness circa you know via hot topic uh which is it's definitely it's mm. aesthetic I think works really well, you know, especially with also a a main character who, uh, you know, is coming off a suicide attempt and who almost gets bullied into another one. Uh, the movie's strengths are really in its character work, in how it is about uh, people who have been suffering at the hands of a high school, uh, you know, the the social gauntlet and who find this way to to get back in some way, to get back at them. And I, I think that those are the ways, and, and actually like rewatching it, it reminded me a lot of Chronicle. I think that Chronicle pulls pretty heavily from this on the same ways instead with like a much more like guy version of this by being like, have some superpowers, you know, group of, group of teenage boys. And maybe you're not going to use them all for the best things. And maybe one of you who comes from the worst background is going to misuse these powers terribly. Um, but I think that like it, it tells the same story uh, just from this uh, more femi feminine perspective. 
do I think this is a good movie? No. I think it, do I think do I think that it gets looked at with a haze of nostalgia that is yes, absolutely. But I think that it does a lot of things right in its central conceit. And I don't think that that should be just blown off. You know, I think as much as plenty of movies get elevated into new classic um just on the basis of people having watched them uh as a teenager or finding some or or having discovered them later but you know and and attaching all this 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 glaze of nostalgia to something i do think that actually the central idea of this would work well uh being remade they keep trying to and have attached different directors i think corin hardy due to the hollow uh was the latest one to be attached and then drop out but I would like to see it actually dragged into the new era and like to actually deal with bullying in the current age, because I think there is still something there that could work. So it is definitely worth another look. The Craft, it is streaming on Amazon Prime. I will confess, I have never seen The Craft. You were sitting there smirking at me this whole time. I've been listening intently. I'm shocked. Never seen it. But now having a daughter, I feel like it's only a matter of time where there's, you know, in a few years down the line, I will... I'll be watching it, probably. Yeah, well, uh, it may not become a treasured text because there's no nostalgia there, but it feels like it's something she's going to find at yeah, some point. There, I mean, there really are, especially, I didn't even mention this, but like the the main character played by Robin Tunney has this storyline in which she's a new girl at school mm-hmm. and goes out with the football player played by Skeet Ulrich. Ooh. 90s own Skeet Ulrich. Sure. And then he tells everyone the day after that she had sex with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's like, you know, slut shamed by the whole school. Mm. And like her, like that, that she has revenge on him by mm. casting a love spell on him, in mm. which she basically just regains all power. Uh, and of course, it doesn't always go well. But uh, everyone, everyone's spells go wrong at the end. But I, I think that there is something to that idea that has a lot of potential to it dramatically. Mm. So, well, it's interesting listening to you talk about this movie and and also thinking more about Independence Day. You know, so many of these movies that have become kind of – I don't want to say cult films because they're mainstream movies, but have have accrued this nostalgic kind of love. I wonder how much of it has to do with, you know, just that they're just on all the time. Well, certainly, you know, and I think things have been written about this, the, like, 20-something kind of, like – fan base for friends a show that was for some people not even on not like on you when were, they were when they were kid, yeah. right. originally yes uh that they were just like much too young for right I, I mean i'm not i feel like nostalgia is the wrong word for it when you didn't experience it for the first time you're not looking back on it right. i'm not sure like why some of these properties and like why those particular properties are the ones that kind of accrue this following what i was going to say though what i was curious about is is this going is this going to change because like we did there were movies that we watched on cable that were just it, mostly because they were available we didn't have netflix and hulu and amazon and thousands of movies to choose from at any moment we had you know, 30 channels and whatever was playing, you know what I mean? And I wonder if there are, there's going to be less of those sorts of things when you can pick whatever you want to watch and there aren't those common movies that, oh, you know, Congo was on HBO 6,000 times when I was a kid. Yeah. Like, I could recite Congo, like, line for line, and that's a terrible movie. Yeah, it is a terrible No one movie, would choose on to watch Congo. No, I think that, I, I actually, I think that we are, like, the, the, the dominance, the, incomprehensible to be dominance of like friends uh speaks to that i think 
yeah, that it still works. You know, how did a lot of people find Friends? They found it because the box sets were available, and now it's streaming, it's on TV it's all on the Netflix. time. Yeah, but like I, I think that what is fascinating to me, and still something I, I have trouble contending with, is like what what movies people pick from from various eras to fixate on, mm-hmm. uh, and why those are the ones that stick. I'm very curious to see what you know, what the Netflix generation sort of fixates on. That's going to be interesting. All right. Well, I couldn't really decide what other to mo- movie to do with my last pick. I thought about Primal Fear, which was a movie that was like on HBO a million times also. And the movie that uh, launched Ed Norton's career. That's right. That but is available on Netflix. It is a giant audition tape for Edward Norton. Pretty basically. much. It's a showcase for him, but he's great in it. That is available on Netflix. There's Star Trek First Contact, which is also on Netflix. That's a very good Star Trek movie. Escape from L.A. is on Netflix. Good, but not as good as Escape from New York. I like Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame, or at least I did at the time, and I was kind of curious about revisiting that, kind of an underrated Disney Renaissance movie. I didn't have time to, though. I also thought about Scream. The original Scream is now 20 years old, which blew my mind. That is on HBO Go and HBO Now. But, of course, I decided not to watch any of those. I decided to almost give myself like a secondary theme, like with Independence Day, which was 96 pop culture that is like back in culture now. So the other thing that I thought of was Mystery Science Theater 3000 because they're doing this big reunion with all of the original or most of the original cast. There's a whole new version of the show, which Joel Hodgson, the original creator and star, is about to launch with a new cast and new writers. I'm sure it's going to be called MST3K Resurgence. Uh, so I thought it might be interesting because I – you know. This, uh, MST3K is another thing that I watched a lot as a kid. You know, it was like in the trinity of TV shows that defined my teenage years along with Seinfeld and The Simpsons. And it's and for a long time, because it was on and then I would have the tapes or whatever, I would watch it all the time. But now in this age of Netflix and Hulu, I don't watch it as much. And so I thought it would be interesting to watch something from 1996. That was the year the movie came out. And it was the year of the seventh season of the show. So there's only one episode from the seventh season that's available online right now. It's called The Brute Man. You can watch that on Hulu and also on Shout Factory TV. And arguably, even though the show was never a huge mainstream hit, I think looking at it now that I've always felt it was influential, but it it only seems more influential to me now. And... Watching the Brute Man episode last night, I really saw YouTube culture in it. You know, that YouTube is not so much about creating content as it is critiquing other content and turning that into your creation. You know, it's about filming yourself playing a video game and talking over it. It's about making an honest trailer of a movie and making fun of it, you know. And so I kind of expected the show to look kind of dated, and it in a weird way, it doesn't. In a weird way, it feels timeless. The movies are very old. The The hosted segments are quasi-futuristic. And so it doesn't really feel like it's from the 90s. It could have made, been made at any time. And the fact that in the host segments, all the characters are talking to the camera also kind of makes it feel like a YouTube show. Like they're, it's like, it's, they're like selfies almost in a weird way. And so it was, it's, it's, it's a fascinating show to watch because you get – like immediately I go, oh, this is why the show – continues to be popular in a way is that it it still speaks to a lot of the things that are still going on and 
you know, the Brute Man episode, not one of my favorites. I had actually never seen this one before. It's not a show that I've seen every single episode. But I think you get in that episode, like so many others, just the density of jokes, which is another thing that I feel like so many people copied, which is just if you have a million jokes, only half of them or even a quarter of them have to be funny. And then your show is or your movie is funny. And I'm very curious to see what the new show looks like. Like, they, is it going to look just like the old one? Or are they going to do something different? I'm, I'm very curious about that but i think the old show still looks really good and it's still in a weird way is kind of even though it's like a puppet show which is insane uh it still looks surprisingly relevant and funny even though some of the jokes are dated the general premise in a weird way feels more timely now than it maybe did in 1996 which is pretty interesting so i guess people don't need me to recommend mystery science theater 3000 but I was interested in kind of dwelling on it as a thing and considering how it holds up today. And if you haven't watched it in a while, it's interesting to look at it now as a product of its era that works uh, surprisingly well in 2016. So that's MST3K. There's a lot of episodes available on Hulu and Shout Factory TV. All right, Allison, what time is it? It's time for silence. Is that... Angry stares. You're not. You're just not going to answer. No, just shake your head. She's shaking her head. You can't. People can't see you doing that. I'm just going to narrate what you're doing. Then shaking her head. Podcast magic right here. <laughs> Let's talk about some new movies, shall we? Um, as I mentioned, Independence Day, one of the biggest movies of the year, has not screened. It's and apparently will screening on Friday morning. Friday morning, which is technically now after it comes out because movies it, now come out on Thursdays. It definitely is. Like yeah. the first public screenings will be at eight o'clock uh, or earlier on, on Thursday, Thursday night. night. So, so they're essentially saying don't see it that night. Um, not a good sign. No. So we haven't seen that. I we have haven't... seen The Shallows. Oh, you it have is embargoed. Oh, okay. So I can't we can't talk, talk about, about that. Yeah, I'm seeing that next week. Okay. Well, you'll tell me off the air how that is. But let's talk about the stuff that is in theaters right now. Including another one of the biggest movies of the year, for sure. The Pixar movie of this summer, Finding Dory, the sequel to Finding Nemo. I actually I haven't read your review. I don't know what you thought of it, Allison. Did you enjoy it? I liked it. I don't think it is as good as Finding Nemo, no. but I think that it works really well. And mm. for a movie that revisits uh, the same structure and really revisits the same theme of mm-hmm. of kind of learning to let someone go like let let someone make their own way i I think there's actually something kind of uh a little pointed about applying that same theme to dory who is unlike nemo not a child you know is this kind of adult with this memory problem it uh, it develops a little bit of a an edge i think in being like it's not always going to go well. She's not always going to, to do well, but she deserves to be trusted to to try things herself. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think the movie actually presented that really well and also worked well in lodging itself in, a, in, in the experiences of a character who's a funny sidekick in the first movie, but who can be, I think, by design, a frustrating main character. Yes. She gets, you know, she, has, she gets distracted very easily. She makes some very poor choices. And I think in this scenes that are genuinely upsetting comes close to forgetting what she was doing and like basically forgetting all of the other parts of the movie, (laughs) you know? Uh, And I I think the movie handled that really well with a character who I think has a lot of potential to be annoying. Uh, I I think it allowed very close and allowed her to be a bit annoying, you know? And I think that, that it it did that well. And also the octopus is great. (laughs) 
Also, the octopus is awesome. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Andrew Stanton, and we talked a little bit about this and how in the first movie she says that being forgetful runs in her family or so she yes. thinks. and that yeah, they where or- are they? Right, yeah. and they originally took that as the truth and tried to write the parents as forgetful <laughs> and said that that was a major mistake because th- one forgetful character is, is can be annoying. Three forgetful characters will literally like drive you to the point of madness and frustration. And yeah, I, I pretty much in a complete agreement with you. It's not as good as finding Nemo, which is one of my very favorite, if not my single favorite Pixar movie. And it does kind of, you know, the best stuff about it is kind of the best stuff about the first movie. They didn't make it that different. And, you know, I felt like the movie went on a little too long. I thought the last sort of big set piece didn't work at all for me. Oh, I liked it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I was like, this movie should be over already. This is this is kind of terrible. But before that, I did enjoy it. I think it's a very well made. You know, Pixar. They're you know they're they're they know what they're doing and they do it very well. And but not always. They're coming off. Always, they're coming but... off. At- a, a loss, as as you say. Yeah, you know, I suppose. Like a dinosaur. They have, but they have a. To me, they have a formula, and it works. To, the, I would say the issue might be that it is feeling more and more formulaic as time goes on. They may need to start to. I don't know. I, I guess they, they have they have hit on this thing that works, and, and sometimes it works incredibly well. But I just sometimes it does feel, especially when you're making a sequel where you've got the same characters, the same milieu. It does begin to feel like it's just a little bit paint by numbers. Beautiful paint, incredible numbers, but it just does feel a little familiar. But still, I had a good time. I enjoyed it. Uh, Very quickly, there's one other big movie in theaters, Central Intelligence. The Rock and Kevin Hart. And I know, actually, we we did discuss this one after it was over, so I know what you think. But why don't you tell people, would you uh, encourage people to see this film if perhaps Finding Dory is sold out or they're not in the mood for talking fish? I mean, I feel like it just works. Mm. You know, it's a pretty sloppy comedy. It's It uh, spends too much time with action that is not that well shot it's bad or, the action is bad uh, yeah and a, a whole spy storyline that doesn't make any sense and it's also frankly not very interesting nope but it does have this whole reunion what am i doing with my life storyline and it has a great performance from the rock who is it's a really good role for the rock actually yep. it understands that part of what is so enjoyable about his screen presence is this feeling that he, well, being this ridiculous, like, physical presence, um, doesn't have any of the same, uh, I don't know, like, the, the macho-ness is only cartoonish. It's harmless. You know, it's friendly. He mm-hmm. is this ray of sunshine in a, a muscle man's body. He is a unicorn. He is a dork. I mean, his character is, like, a big geek and right. stays that way. Is, is an oddball in really charming ways. Uh, I, yeah, I think that he's the reason this movie, he's the reason to see this movie. If you like The Rock... And who doesn't like The Rock? Uh, that performance is a is one that like pulls from a lot of his strengths. And, I mean, like otherwise, and Kevin Hart's fine. He gets kind of he gets cast as the straight man, which isn't I think a role that he really wanted to play. I feel like sometimes he's just busting out of that to seize any opportunity. He's fighting against it. Yeah. He's trying to get some jokes in. Yeah, I agree. But they're good together. That's the thing they is that they, they make a good combination. They look good together. Like physically, they're just funny looking together. You know, the very, very short guy and the guy who, you know, like to me, it was like looking at Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk, like on the screen at the same time. They, you know, like the character that The Rock is playing is almost like the manifestation of this Id that is trying to burst out of Kevin Hart, who's this very frustrated guy whose life has not worked out the way he's wanted it to, even though he's 
you know, happily married, kind of. That's another angle of the movie that his, doesn't his entirely not work. Special, right? That it's is boring. The it's boring. Yeah. He wanted. It's, he he was exceptional in high school. Right. And he was he, most likely I, to succeed, and he's now an accountant, a, a normal adult. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. Yeah. Again, that we we're we're this week we are pretty much entirely in agreement. It's not a great movie, but I enjoyed it enough to say yeah, it's pretty good. I don't think you need to rush out to the theater to see this one. But this is a movie that would have this is a movie that would have played a million times on cable when we were kids, and then twenty years later we would have been like, oh yeah, Central Intelligence. We I saw that movie a million times, and it wasn't amazing, but I liked it. That's that's pretty much it. Yeah. And The Rock is. Fantastic. fantastic and uh, you know I, w- I don't know I don't need to see a central intelligence 2 but I would like to see another movie with Kevin Hart and, and Dwayne Johnson I think they're a very good pair and I would be interested to see them make more movies together alright let's do uh, behind the eight ball now that's how we wrap up the show every time we give you some new releases that are on streaming we give you some listener recommendations that you guys sent to us at our email address svu at filmspottingsvu.com and we give you a film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, who's going first this time? I'm going first. All right. So how about you give us three new releases? Okay. First up, new to 2B TV is Dark Horse. Um, Todd Salanza's new movie, Wiener Dog, is coming out in theaters, I believe, this week. So you can catch up with his last one on 2B TV. It is... I think one of his best uh, about a man named Abe played by Jordan Gelber, who is a 30 something loser who has been kind of coddled by his parents, still lives at home with them, uh, collects toys, seems frozen in this man child territory in the most uncute, like un, un like Will Ferrell comedy way. And uh, tries to court a character played by Selma Blair, who is maybe the grown-up version of the character she played in storytelling. And things go about as poorly as they often do in a Todd Salons movie. I, I, I just, this movie is so darkly funny and has empathy for a character who is pr- quite, quite fairly terrible. It is definitely worth checking out. That is Dark Horse on Tubi TV. New to Amazon Prime is Mr. Robot, one of the most talked about new shows of last year for good reason. Uh, starring Remy Malek as Elliot Alderson a hacker and a robot a robot mr but where is mrs robot searching for mrs robot uh (laughs) no he is a hacker and he is maybe trying to maybe trying to save the world by way of being a robot by way of hacking uh the credit record a la fight club and uh, this this is this show does like owe a bit to fight club but i think what makes it most interesting is the cinematography which is really distinctive for a television show and is more visual than i think tv usually gets to is really a, one of a sign of the more cinema, uh cinematic direction that television's taking so that is mr robots and finally new to fandor is spider baby the 1968 horror comedy uh written and directed by jack hill starring lon cheney jr as a caretaker of three wealthy inbred uh, nuts siblings who uh, all all have their own terrible weird quirks. Most distinctively, Jill Banner as Virginia, aka the Spider Baby of the title, who is obsessed with spiders, eats them, and uh, tries to catch people in her web and and kill them. It's a very odd movie, and uh, it's a hard to forget one. And that is on Fandor. 
All right. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. First up, we have one from Jorge from Taipei, Vancouver, and Mexico. Uh, it's quite a trio. Who writes, the list of TV shows that you presented as listener choice option, this is back a few episodes ago, was disappointing. Uh, aside from the Louis C.K. option, has any of these shows had any cultural impact whatsoever? Will they? Are they remarkable in any way? What I'm getting at is, how come you haven't talked about Les Revenants, or I think it's called here The Returned, which is available on Netflix? One of the best shows in TV history is not worth talking about just because it's not in English. Uh, ahem, let's pretend the English remake never happened. The only plausible mission, explanation for the omission that I can think of is that you haven't seen it. If that's the case, go do yourself a favor and watch the first couple of episodes. Season two only gets better. Uh, and he also says that he hopes we talk about The Rock for 1996 movies, the last legitimately good Michael Bay movie. Um, I will say I have talked about uh, the returned, I believe, like I mentioned it back when it first got put on Netflix. Yeah, I've seen the first season. I think it's very good. I have not seen the second season yet. And Pain and Gain is Michael Bay's last legitimately good movie. Bite your tongue, sir. <laughs> All right. And then we have a comment from Samantha in Fresno who writes, wanted to recommend the Adderall Diaries, which has just been added to Amazon Prime, an adaptation of Stephen Elliott's true crime memoir with James Franco, actually pretty compelling as Elliott, a writer who gets confronted with evidence of fictionalizing his troubled past to make it more dark uh, when his father, played by Ed Harris, shows up at one of his readings. That is the Adderall Diaries, and that is on Amazon Prime. All right, and one film chosen blindly by a number from your my list. You gave me number five. It is my list. The God of Cookery, uh, Stephen Chow movie that I have not seen. Actually, a 1996 movie. So, fits in with our theme. Uh, Stephen Chow stars in it as the most renowned and feared chef in the world who loses his title of the God of Cookery because of his terrible attitude and has to set out to reclaim it. Um, I've never seen it, and I really like Stephen Chow, so that is on my my list. Okay, Matt, are you ready? Yes. All right, give me three new releases. First up, Orange is the New Black is back for a fourth season on Netflix. This is probably my favorite Netflix series, I think, uh, in the, uh, you know, all told. I've probably, uh, I guess other than House of cards I've, there's no comparison in terms of just the sheer number of episodes i've watched it's created by jenji cohen based on the book by piper kerman taylor Schilling once again stars as piper chapman a little fictionalized version there of piper the real piper and in this women's prison drama which is always growing more crowded more complicated and more dangerous we discuss seasons one and two of this show on film spotting svu episodes 40 and 62 Next up, a timely addition to Netflix, given its subject's recent passing. It's The Trials of Muhammad Ali, a 2013 documentary about Ali's fight to overturn his prison sentence after he refused to be drafted into the Vietnam War because of his religious beliefs. There are a lot of very good movies about Muhammad Ali, and I don't think this is in the upper echelon, but it does focus on an aspect of his life that is very important and is often overlooked or maybe minimized because in most of the other films, they're all about boxing. And during this period... Ali didn't box because he couldn't box. So it's sort of an important movie in that sense, and it's worth checking out if you've seen other Ali docs, but not this one and don't know too much about this time in his life. So that's The Trials of Muhammad Ali, and that is available on Netflix. Finally, coming to Netflix on June 22nd is Spotlight, last year's Oscar Best Picture winner. Directed by Tom McCarthy, the film follows the members of the Boston Globe's investigative unit Spotlight as they uncover this 
cover-up within the Catholic Church. Michael Keaton, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams star. It was a movie I really enjoyed. Uh, you know, uh, wrote uh, several pieces kind of about how great this movie is. And uh, if you missed it in theaters, if you missed it on home video, it will be on Netflix starting on June 22nd. All right. Two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Jill, who writes, I'm on a biodoc kick this week. Tab Hunter Confidential, which was produced on a budget and wasn't fancy, but I was totally into it. I love anything about weird Hollywood of yore. Also, Janice Little Girl Blue, a better, deeper, and sadder film. Next up for me, What Happened, Miss Simone? And that is from Jill. What Happened, Miss Simone? I thought was pretty good as well. I've seen that one. And next up, we have an email from Michael Rosh, who writes, Hi, Matt and Allison. I wanted to suggest a short film that's been getting some attention lately, Sunspring, the nine-minute film directed by Oscar Sharp and written by the artificially intelligent computer Jetson, which went on to change its own name to Benjamin because, of course, it did. With little to guide the computer except the database of classic sci-fi movie scripts, Sunspring stars Silicon Valley's Thomas Middleditch and was made in only 48 hours. The actors made an impressive effort at trying to achieve the Herculean task of making Benjamin's total nonsense word salad dialogue work while Sharp in, in, interpreted the AI's completely impossible stage directions. For example, he is standing in the stars and sitting on the floor. And actress Elizabeth Gray ends the film on a monologue that is equal parts incomprehensible, confounding, heartbreaking, and sublime. Sunspring is available for streaming on YouTube. Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. That's from Michael Rosh. And I hadn't heard anything about this. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, I saw it bouncing around on uh, Twitter. I didn't have a chance to watch it yet, but that's, that's a pretty good pitch, so I will check it out. Okay. All right, and one from your My List. You gave me number four, and right now on my list, number four is The Burbs from Joe Dante, starring Tom Hanks, film about suburban satire and paranoia. Another movie from our childhoods that was on television a lot, but one that I didn't watch that much, but maybe because it was on TV so much or because it actually is really good, has become more and more of a movie people tend to like and look back on fondly. And because I hadn't seen it, um, in so long and never was a huge fan of it i kind of wanted to revisit it and that's why i added it to my my list allison uh on this show or i guess on our last show when we gave our listeners choice options for this show we went with the theme of 1996 and this time we have a theme too it's recent documentaries we're doing a recent documentary trio of picks you have the first one. What is I it? I do. It is a documentary called Terror, uh, though, as it's written, it's the T in brackets. So T-error. T-error, yeah. Uh, that will be added to Netflix on June 30th. And I think this was a really, it was a slept on documentary from last year. It had some big fans among the critics, but it really, I think, should have been a bigger deal. It is directed by Lyric Cabral and David Sutcliffe. And is about a live FBI undercover operation in which an informant, like a, a guy who basically is paid by the FBI on occasion to go and attempt to inform, befriend and inform suspected terrorists, um, who was Lyric Cabral's downstairs neighbor. That's how she met him. Uh, he, he engages in this sting to try and take down a Muslim, a white Muslim man. In uh, I think he's in, in Pennsylvania, who goes by this name of Khalifa, and it's all about the incredible clumsiness of how this is done, and also about 
it's kind of shocking. And I think the, you know, the more, especially right now on the news where we're seeing so much about how the FBI did or didn't investigate you know, the Orlando shooter, this is how the FBI investigates a suspected terrorist. Uh, and I think that it's kind of shocking and funny and terrible and dark from all angles. So it's a really provocative movie, and it's, I think, a look into how something happens that is startling. Um, so that's Terror. It is on Netflix on June 30th. All right. I haven't seen that one yet, but I've really been looking forward to it. So I'm excited as that, that is an option. I, I would be very happy if that won. I have seen our second choice. It is an even more recent documentary. It uh, is called OJ Made in America, and this is just airing now on television on ESPN and ABC. And it's like a five-part documentary miniseries. If you have cable, you can stream it online. You can watch the whole thing through ESPN's streaming site. Uh, If you don't have it, you can buy the whole show, all five episodes, all, I believe, seven and a half hours uh, on iTunes. They're available all over the place, and it is an incredible documentary. It's directed by Ezra Edelman. This is part of the 30 for 30 series that ESPN does, whereas those are usually pretty short, you know, like an hour long. This is seven and a half hours, and even if you know the story, even if you watched the recent OJ series on FX, this shows the whole thing in a new light. There are revelations I certainly didn't know. There are things you see that you've never seen before that are fascinating, very troubling. You see the crime scene photos, which are horrifying. And you don't even really get into the the murder and the trial until the third episode. After three hours, they spend three hours building up not just O.J. Simpson, the the man, the celebrity, but also talking about Los Angeles and race and all of these issues that became – that all came together in this trial and influenced what happened during that trial. And I thought it was an incredible, not to spoil the review, but I thought it's a pretty incredible documentary. Allison hasn't seen it yet. Yeah. And I've been dying to. So So you would be giving her an excuse to, uh, to, to watch it, to talk about it. And uh, I don't know, maybe we could do 30 for 30s as a theme. Even there are a ton of them available on Netflix. They've made some very good ones. So that might be interesting, or sports docs, maybe more broadly, we could do as a possible theme. So that's option number two. OJ Made in America, you can buy it online or you can stream it on ESPN. All right, and our third option is a movie-centric doc. It is Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made, which is now available for rent and I believe on demand, and is about the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, which is really the most, one of the most famous fan films ever made. Uh, it was made by three teenagers in Mississippi who shot, did a shot-by-shot remake of the Spielberg film. It took them seven years. So in some scenes, they are very young. And in other scenes, they are teenagers. It, uh, and sometimes they, they, inv- they pull off some really impressive uh, bits of recreation uh, for a movie that is very special effects heavy. It is an extremely sweet, lovely bit of fan art 
like very extensive bit of fan art. And this is a documentary about it. It's kind of a love letter to, to fan creations like that. Um, so that is our third pick. Uh, Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. That is available for rent. All right. Which documentary should we review on the next episode of Filmspotting SVU? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, June 27th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you will have all that week to watch the doc we pick. And then join us for our next conversation, which will be around Tuesday, July 5th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, and we always put up a list of direct links to all of the movies and the TV shows we discuss on the show, so you can find that there as well. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can find more of his work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the documentary review that you pick. And in the meantime, you can always follow us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore, and Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That is where we announce the winner of each episode's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions that you should know about. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.